Amen. All right. Thank you, Don. Welcome, everyone, to our midweek study here in the middle of Ezekiel. I want to invite you to join me in your Bible in the book of Ezekiel. If you ever have trouble finding it, just open your Bible to the middle. You'll hit Psalms or Proverbs, most likely. Just turn to the right past Isaiah and Jeremiah, and you'll hit Ezekiel. Lamentations. And we pick it up this evening in chapter 27, so why don't you join me there and allow me to give a brief recap before we read. Last week, we studied chapter 26. Chapter 26 of Ezekiel is a prophecy directed to the city of Tyre. Tyre was the ancient, if you will, capital of the Phoenician people, a very wealthy um, expert, uh, expert sea uh, tra- travelers and uh, shipbuilders were the Phoenician people. Uh, during the entirety of what we consider to be the Old Testament, uh, essentially from Exodus to Malachi, the Phoenician people were uh, living on the coast of the Mediterranean, and uh, they, they, they built uh, impressive power, influence, and wealth for themselves. And uh, the city of Tyre is sort of the, like I say, it's something of a capital city. If they had a capital, this would have been it. And so when God addresses the people in the city of Tyre, he is addressing this people group as a whole. And we note that chapters 25 through 32 are this I word called an intermezzo, right? Intermezzo. It is a play within a play. It is the stopping of the story where God deals with Israel. And for eight chapters, God deals with the rest of the nations of the earth. And so we're in that portion of Ezekiel where God's not addressing Israel anymore. He's addressing the other nations on earth. Now, critically, Israel is captive in Babylon. Uh, We would call it today something like, you know, Iran, Saudi Arabia. Well, Saudi Arabia is more on the Sinai Peninsula, but uh, Iran, Iraq area. So they're in ancient Babylon, uh, in captivity, uh, because the hand of the Lord was used uh, and extended uh, to discipline his children, Israel, after they had spent centuries disobeying his law. And so Ezekiel is a young priest turned prophet, and he is there in the exile in Babylon preaching to the captives. The first 25 chapters, or 24 chapters, Ezekiel is preaching to the captives Um, essentially to compel them to wake up to the state of their own sinfulness, acknowledge their failure, repent of their sin, and acknowledge the, the fact that they're there in this condition because of their own failure. Not that, um, not that, Babylon was, uh, the enemy of God, but rather Babylon was the hand of God, used to discipline his children. When we turn the page from chapter 24 to 25 and the other nations of the world begin to be addressed, 
we noted a strategic observation in that order of operations. And that's from this phrase from Peter that judgment begins with the house of the Lord. And the point here was simply that judgment, punishment, consequence begins with the home. It begins with the children before it finds its way out to those outside the family. We noted that this is how things were happening with Israel. First, the house of the Lord was punished for their neglect of God's law. And then God's attention was drawn to those who had rejected him, who had stood up in pride and beat their chests against him. And then their judgment is pronounced, but not before God deals with his own house. We noted how this is a picture of how God works in history, but also in judgment. In the last days, we note that we are living in them, the final age. As Paul said in Romans 13, uh, the night is nearly gone, the day is at hand. The idea being that most of world history is behind us. There's more world history behind us than there is in front of us before the second coming of Jesus. And so we're living in the last days, and in these last days, the Lord disciplines his house, his church, through church discipline, through the elders' oversight, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, through that nagging voice in our, in our guts when we know we are at odds with our God through sin. However, after the church age is over, then God's attention is turned to the nations of the world. And we read that the great white throne of judgment, every man, woman, child will stand before him and we will receive what we have earned. In the case of those, who are, those of us who are hidden in Christ, what we have earned is what Jesus earned on our behalf. But for all those who are outside the family of God, they will receive what they have earned. And that's God's wrath, his judgment. And so that's the big picture here. First with the house, and then with the nations. So we noted last week as we went through chapter 26 that, that each aspect of Ezekiel's prophecy in chapter 26 came true. The first 11 verses of chapter 26 speak to Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of the coastal city of Tyre. And this happened immediately after the downfall or the the absolute destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar's third campaign against Judah. Immediately after that siege was finished, the very next year, Nebuchadnezzar marched his army to the banks of the city of Tyre. After a 13-year siege, Nebuchadnezzar broke down the walls, entered the city, only to find all the inhabitants, or the majority of the inhabitants, and all their wealth had retreated to an island just off the coast, on the other side of a sandbar. And so Nebuchadnezzar went home, roughly defeated, but not until he laid waste to the entire city, just as the opening 10 verses of the prophecy say. And so in this case, Ezekiel prophesied the events that would occur 13, 14 years in the future. 
When we move to verse 12 through to the end of chapter 26, now Ezekiel's prophecy fast forward some 240 years to when Alexander the Great marched his army after defeating Egypt up the coastline to the city of Tyre. He was on his way to defeat the Persian king, but before he did, he marches his way up and he tells Tyre to surrender to him, bow the knee or be destroyed. And they laughed at him until he built a land bridge from the rubble of the old city out to the island city of Tyre and with a combination of uh, naval and uh, uh, foot soldier work, I don't know how to say it, you know, uh, naval and foot, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. Uh, the, let's see that picture again, Dylan, if we can. Uh, so Alexander the Great, he, he built that land bridge out to the end, that, that peninsula. It used to be an island back in Nebuchadnezzar's day. And so there's the land bridge that Alexander the Great built out of the rubble of the old city in order to march his army across it and take the new city of, or the city of New Tyre. And that's the second half of chapter 26. And so we simply noted here that God's not in any hurry. If he says it, it's going to happen. And just as Ezekiel prophesied, first 14 years in advance and then 240 years in advance, exactly as the Lord spoke through his prophet, events of world history have proven them to be absolutely reliable and true. When we turn the page to chapter 27, now, now there is this poetic dirge. It's a funeral song sung over the city of Tyre. And it's not that uh, the prophet is grieving, but rather it's simply the reality of this once great city that has been brought to rubble prophetically because of its own pride. And so let's take in just the opening I don't know. Let's just start reading it and see where we go. Chapter 27. If you'd like, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. The word of the Lord came to me. Now you, son of man, raise a lamentation over Tyre and say to Tyre, who dwells at the entrances to the sea, merchant of the peoples to many coastlands, thus says the Lord God, O Tyre, you have said, I am perfect in beauty. See the pride? Your borders are in the heart of the seas. Your builders made perfect your beauty. They made all your planks of fir trees from Sinar. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Of oaks of Bashan, they made your oars. They made your deck of pines from the coast of Cyprus inlaid with ivory. Of fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail, serving as your banner. Blue and purple. Remember the whole thing with the purple and the snails, guys? Good. Good. I'm just saying it's good that you remember because it was part of this sermon. Okay. Blue and purple from the coast of Elisha were, was your awning. The inhabitants of Sidon, that's another Phoenician city, and Arvad were your rowers. Your skilled men, O Tyre, were in you. They were, in, they were your pilots. 
The elders of Gibal and her skilled men were in you, caulking your seams. All the ships of the sea with, her, with their mariners were in you to barter for your wares. Persia and Lud and Put were in your army as your men of war. They hung the shield and helmet in you. They gave you splendor. Men of Arvad and Helek were on your sails all around, and men of Gamad were in your towers. They hung their shields on your walls all around. They made perfect your beauty. Tarshish did business with you because of your great wealth of every kind. Silver, iron, tin, and lead they exchanged for your wares. Javan, Tubal, and Meshech traded with you. They exchanged human beings. Remember the slave trade we talked about? And vessels of bronze for your merchandise. From Beth Togamear, they exchanged horses, war horses and mules for your wares. The men of Dedan traded with you. Many coastlands were your own special markets. Remember how we talked about this. This was their, they were seafaring. They brought you in payment ivory tusks and ebony. Syria did business with you because of your abundant goods. They exchanged your wares, emeralds, purple, embroidered work, fine linen, coral, and ruby. Judah and the land of Israel traded with you. They exchanged for your merchandise, wheat of minneth, meal, honey, oil, and balm. Damascus did business with you for your abundant goods because of your great wealth of every kind, wine of Hebron and wool of Sahar and casks of wine from Uzal they exchanged for your wares. Wrought iron, cassia, and calamus were bartered for your merchandise. Okay, friends, do you get the point? The, the scriptures do not repeat themselves purposelessly, right? What's the point of this exuberant and exhaustive list of places and cities and merchant activity? Well, the point is to paint the picture of Tyre as the, the pinnacle of human endeavor, completely irrespective of God. The pinnacle of human achievement separated from God. Well, once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer while we stand holding his word. Father, we once again, we ask that you would give us minds to understand and hearts that are pliable and a will that can be shaped for your purposes. Help us to obey that which we learn in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. And so here, here we are, friends. God's attention is turned to this city of Tyre, a, a metaphor of sorts, a picture, but also a real city. With this recap concerning chapter 26, the city of Tyre, and now this lament over its both prideful pinnacle and terrible destruction, we are reminded of a few things about biblical prophecy that we need to observe. The first of which, if you're taking notes, quite simply is this phrase, near and far. Near and far. Bible prophecy operates in this manner constantly. With seemingly every prophecy, there is a near and a far fulfillment. Let's consider a couple of them briefly. In Genesis chapter 9, the sons of Noah are blessed. Prophetic things are spoken over them and their descendants. Ham 
is in perpetual slavery to his brothers according to the prophecy. And from Ham was born the inhabitants of the African continent and the Canaanites. And sadly, both in ancient and modern times, when slavery was widely practiced all over the Western world, the majority of the slaves were from the African continent. We discussed last week how the Phoenicians would buy slaves from Africa who were embroiled in tribal warfare, and they would sell them to European countries across the Mediterranean. It's not good, but it happened just as the prophecy over Ham foretold. Japheth was to be enlarged. You have Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Japheth is spoken over him that he would be enlarged. His territory would be enlarged. And from him comes all the Caucasian, Asian, Slavic, German, French, English. All of these people groups trace their lineage back to Japheth. Indeed, his heritage, uh, his his. Uh, territory was enlarged. The third son, Shem, is said to enslave Canaan. Shem will enslave Canaan, and Japheth will hide in the tents of Shem. Well, Israel, who are descendants of Shem, when they took the promised land, yes, many of the inhabitants of Canaan, the sons of Ham, were driven out of the land, including the Phoenicians who were driven north into what we call Lebanon. But also many of them, as you read the biblical account of the taking of the promised land, many of them were made into what was called forced labor. And so they were essentially enslaved to the invading Hebrew people. When Israel escaped Egypt, we read that a mixed multitude of other slaves in Egypt escaped with them. You might say they hid in the tents, metaphorically, of Shem, the mixed multitude of non-Semitic people, not descendants of Shem. They hid in the tents of Shem as Israel was ushered out of the slavery of Egypt. They escaped Egypt and the rule of Pharaoh. Now that's history. And in simple terms, these blessings or prophecies have come true. They were spoken over the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and indeed, just in that period of time, they came true. But there's also a far fulfillment. That's the near, this is the far. The descendants of Japheth, which is basically the majority of the population of the world today, we hide in the tents of Shem, metaphorically, in that Jesus is a descendant of Shem, And in him, people from every tribe and nation are counted among those who are called the church. We escape the slavery of sin and sin's Pharaoh, Satan. You see the picture? That happens right now. And then in the final judgment, it happens decisively. You see, near and far. Another example, God speaks this prophecy over Abraham. He says, through your descendants, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Right? Familiar phrase, right? Well, when God gave his revelation, that's God revealing himself to the people of Israel. When he gave, him, gave them his inspired word, it was, it was preserved and cherished by the people of Israel. God's character and his word spoken to his prophets, they they carefully guarded this word. 
And these recorded words were copied with precision, guarded with care. They were lived out in the culture of the people. The name of God was preserved for all the world to see and know who he was as he is revealed through his chosen people, Israel. Now, so you could say, even if Jesus had never come, or you might say, even before Jesus coming onto the scene, all the nations of the world were blessed through the descendants of Abraham because these people preserved the word of God. In fact, anyone could be a proselyte. They could, they could convert to Judaism and they could enjoy the covenant blessings of the people of God. They could come into the synagogue and be taught about his name and his character and learn his word and observe the wisdom that came from his proverbs and his kings, right? And so even if Jesus had not come, the nations of the world were blessed by Abraham's descendants just by dint of Israel's preservation of God's revelation. That's the near. Of course, but there's the far. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through your descendants, Abraham. All the nations are blessed because any of us from any tribe, language, place, or heritage can believe and confess that the rightful Hebrew king Jesus lived, died, and rose again and that he is today seated with the Father in heaven. We can know God We can be known by God, be indwelt by the Spirit of God, and have confidence on the last day, all because of a Hebrew man, a Hebrew, the Hebrew Messiah, made peace with God possible for all by the shedding of his blood. So do you see it, friends, near and far? Two of you see it. Okay, good. The same... The same concept, near and far, can be said regarding the prophecies of Tyre, as we discussed. Chapter 26, 27, and into chapter 28, they all describe the events that we walked through historically last week. Some near, 13, 14 years, some far, 250 years. All right, that's all we need to say about that because we've got to move on. Near and far. This is one of the key lessons about biblical prophecy that Ezekiel is teaching us. The second lesson that Ezekiel is teaching us about biblical prophecy is actual and metaphorical. And this gets harder. If you thought the near and the far was complicated to follow and track, the actual and the metaphorical is harder. So, like, I don't know, seat belt, you know, thinking cap, drink of water, you know, do some jumping jacks, whatever you need to do, okay? But biblical prophecy teaches us about the actual and the metaphorical as well. And here's the concept, okay? Someone in history lives a real life, right? Sarah, you know, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, Rebecca has two sons, right? And Paul later says this was a an allegory for you to understand. So someone lived a real life. There was a real person who lived real events. But then later on, we're explained in the New Testament that that this was to teach us something about God. Not that this didn't happen, but also there's more to it 
than simply a record of historical people. So you have actual and metaphorical. One example that's worth considering is the famous story of Abraham taking Isaac to the top of the mountain. The top of the mountain named Moriah, specifically, Genesis 22. Take Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah. Now, this mountain isn't called Jerusalem in Genesis 22, but this mountain is the very mountain upon which Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem a thousand years in the future. And so there, Abraham ushers his son up to the Temple Mount, as we call it today, to sacrifice his son Isaac as a test of faith. And they get to the top of the mountain, Mount Moriah, and Isaac says, Father, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide. Now, in actual history, this happened. Abraham marched his son Isaac up with firewood and no sacrifice. But the metaphorical prophecy was to be fulfilled much later. God himself provided his son, the lamb who would be slain to take away the sins of the world. And when Jesus' body was crucified, the veil in the temple was torn. The temple built on Mount Moriah by Solomon that was destroyed by the Babylonians and rebuilt by Zerubbabel and then expanded by King Herod. There on that same mountain, the blood of the offering was applied in the presence of God. And so strong was the application that the many layers thick woolen curtain was ripped from top to bottom when he breathed his last. Interestingly, in Genesis 22, Abraham renames the mountain, Mount Moriah. He calls it, the Lord will provide. And, of course, he did, right? Later, or in another part of the Bible, Isaiah would refer to Mount Moriah as the rock of Israel. The rock. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah Jesus calls it the rock on which he builds his church. His confession, not the man, his confession that he is the Messiah. The rock of Israel, Isaiah calls him. The work that was accomplished on the Lord will provide. Jesus later refers to himself as that stone, the stone that the builders rejected that had become the cornerstone, the rock of Israel, the work accomplished at Mount Moriah. So do you see, friends, there's actual and there's metaphorical. It's a real place, real events, but the truth is much greater in its metaphorical and final prophetic fulfillment. Another example, when Israel wandered the wilderness and became thirsty, God commanded Moses to strike the rock and the water would come out to save them from certain death. Later, Jesus' body would be struck and from his side would flow blood and water. Jesus, when speaking to the woman at the well, said, I am the living water and if anyone drinks from the water I give, they will never thirst again. They'll be saved from the water excuse me, saved from death by the water that comes from the rock, the rock of Israel, Isaiah 30, 29. 
Well, back to Moses, a second time, Israel was thirsty and God says to Moses, speak to the rock and water will flow to save them from death. Famously, Moses disobeyed and he didn't speak to the rock, but he scolded the people of Israel, made himself an equal partner with God, struck the rock, God graciously gave the water, but as a result, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. Why? He misrepresented God to the people. What was the point? Why would God say strike it this time and speak to it that time? That's probably what Moses was thinking. Last time I smacked it with the stick and now I smack it with the stick again and somehow this is a terrible thing. Well, what's the point? Well, because there's an actual and a metaphorical. The picture was supposed to be painted. Jesus, the rock of Israel, must only be struck once, Romans 6.10. One death for all. It need not and will not be repeated. By the way, this is why I don't believe that there are other intelligent life forms. Because the Son of God, dying for the sins of the world, living the full life, he is a sympathetic high priest so he can empathize in our weakness. This is a once and for all unrepeatable event according to Romans 6.10. And so if there were other intelligent life forms, there would need to be another Messiah for each of them. But there can't be, for there is but one. You see? Right? Anyway, that's, that's aliens, okay? That's the theology of aliens. That's not part of my notes. No, what's the point? Once Jesus was crucified, no other Savior would need to be struck. Only confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. No further sacrifice is needed. Actual, metaphorical. Now, as we turn the page to chapter 28 of Ezekiel, verses 11 through 19 treat us to another actual and metaphorical prophecy. Actual, metaphorical. Let's read it together, beginning in verse 11. And I'm only skipping ahead for the sake of time. There's a lot of you know, well, you have to read it for yourself later because I only have like 40 minutes by the time I get up here. And five of that is needless jokes and three of that is a theology of aliens. So, verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre, not the city, the king, Different from before, okay? And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. That's weird. You were an anointed guardian cherub, or a singular of what we usually refer to as the cherubim, or cherubim, multiple angels. This is a one angel. You were an anointed guardian cherub, or an archangel. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God, In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found 
in you. In the abundance of your trade, he goes on and changes from this very mystical to very practical. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Verse 18. By the multitude of your iniquities in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries, so I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Well, that's pretty wild, right? Here, God seems to be addressing the king of Tyre, an actual man who lived in an actual place, though metaphorically, prophetically speaking, he's obviously talking about who? Satan, yeah. Could any other spiritually created being be described in those terms based on everything else we know about the Bible? Certainly not. He's referring to Lucifer, the archangel who fell from heaven. Fascinatingly, in Luke chapter 10, Jesus just like throws this grenade into the middle of a conversation with the disciples and then just walks away. He says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then he just carries on (laughs) and Luke just keeps, it's like, yeah, and you're like, whoa, hey, stop, wait. Can you expound on that, please? You know? When was this? Genesis 1, 2, like, right? Where did this, because this isn't in my Bible, but Jesus is like, I saw it happen. Of course he did. He was there. Nothing was made that wasn't made except that which was made through him, John chapter 1. When did this happen? When did Jesus see Satan fall like lightning from heaven? God doesn't say But in the beginning, God created everything, and it was good. It was very good. And then at some point in the ancient early beginnings of the heavens and the earth, quote, unrighteousness was found in you, God says to Lucifer. And Satan is found by Genesis chapter 3, tempting Eve in the Garden of Eden. Isaiah speaks of this as well. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground, you who laid nations low? You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mountain the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. There is also reasonable debate about whether the description of a war between Michael the archangel and Lucifer in Revelation 12, if that's speaking of an ancient war or a future war in the heavenlies, there's some debate. Could be both. 
near and far. So you have God through Ezekiel in chapter 28 describing a proud city as a metaphor. In the second half of chapter 28, God describing a proud king as a metaphor for the person and influence of Satan. Remember, Tyre was the bright shining star of the Phoenician people. Wealthy and powerful, long-lasting was their influence. I mean, imagine, think about this, friends. America has been a country for how many years? Come on, homeschoolers. Come on, I know I've got like eight homeschoolers and at least multiple homeschool teachers in here. How many years? I'm just getting them. From up here, it just sounds like a bunch of people who don't know the answer. A bunch, all right? A couple. A couple hundred years. 300 years. Rough. Okay, thank you. Okay? Not even three centuries, right? And think of, think of the, the, the best version of American pride that you can, right? The stars and stripes, right? What does it represent? Well, the 50 states of the Union, the red and the white, the blood of our soldiers who bled and died to secure our freedom from dictators on the other side of the world. We are the most sophisticated nation in terms of military intelligence. We have the, the strongest army in the history of the world. We are the wealthiest country in the history of the world. We have the most ridiculous amount of vast land and resources. The dollar for most of, you know, the better part of the last hundred years or more has been like the standard currency upon which everything else is gauged. Most other countries in Europe teach English as a second language because English is the language of money, so you need to know it. The rest of us, I can't even speak to my African friend even this much French because I'm a dummy, right? Now, you think about all the history over the last couple of hundred years, you think about that sense of pride that like, you know, that, that American opportunity. People flock to this country. They will sell everything they have, risk life and limb just to get here for a slice of the American dream. Not even three centuries. Imagine 1,200 years of dominance in the ancient world. I mean, we just read it in the opening portion of 27. Just all these countries they bought from you, they sold to you. Your cities were white and gleaming. And now the king, the king is being compared to the archangel Lucifer for his majesty, but again, also his pride. The accomplishment of the people, the wealth, the power, the influence, the pride of her leader. Imagine the wealth of this people. Well, this is what God says to them. 
verse 19. Chapter 28, verse 19. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. Why? You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 10, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Well, he carried on. He said, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. The power and the majesty of the metaphorical man in Ezekiel 28 has been put under the feet of the people of Jesus. But he says, don't rejoice about this. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. No matter his power, no matter his seeming greatness, this enemy of God was, was and is and will be brought to an absolute end. Later in Revelation 20, at the end of time, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut the door and sealed it over him. Notice an angel bound him. God doesn't lift a finger. Shows the limits of his power, doesn't it? shut the door and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. This is the idea the people of God are raised. But those who die in their sin will be raised later to be judged. That's the second resurrection. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison, Revelation tells us, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I think the point, friend, is as we read this description in Ezekiel 28 of the king of Tyre, who was an actual man who was quite proud and successful, yet we note it is also a metaphorical description of the archangel Lucifer fallen from heaven like lightning. Let us be amazed, but also let us not fear, for greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. A couple of points of application in closing as we uh, just stew on these big concepts about prophecy, near and far, actual and metaphorical. Number one, we should note just quite simply, God is sovereign, (laughs) okay? God is in control. 
He is overseeing all of these things. His prophets are foretelling events that are to come in the future, some near, some far, some even farther. He's got this. Alistair says, all the ebb and flow of history is to be viewed in light of the fact that there is a throne in heaven, that throne is not empty, it is occupied by God, and God is in control. A reading through Ezekiel might leave you with more questions than answers, but all the ebb and flow of history is to be viewed in light of the fact that there's a throne in heaven. That throne is not empty. It's occupied by God, and God is in control. That is certainly reinforced as we consider these ancient prophecies. Second thing I would note is that God is compassionate. He's in control, but he's also compassionate. I mean, consider this, friends. Here God preserves his word as a giant warning for all who would stand up and pound their chest in his face. God says, I revealed things to my prophets that came true later so that you would have absolute certainty that everything else they predicted will also come true, including the judgment on the last day. If you continue to pound your chest and defy me, you will receive that which you earn. But here, in his preserved word, a very compassionate God is saying to the people who would defy him and revile him, he's saying, it's all right here, friends. I will do as I said I'm going to do. The things of the earth will happen as I predicted. You can see it's happening. The rest will happen, including the judgment on the last day. Repent and be saved. You see, he's compassionate to reveal himself and his plans. It's a, it'd be a pretty cruel God who would intend to judge the world and then hide that knowledge from them. Yeah? But here is a God who has revealed himself and he has blessed the nations of the earth through the people of Israel who preserved his revelation. And here God proves his word by establishing events in history and seeing that they come to pass exactly as he prophesies because he is compassionate. God's word, quote, God's word doesn't introduce us to a deity on a deck chair who is indifferent. Rather, it directs us to a God on a cross who understands rejection, pain, and grief at the deepest level because he has experienced those things. He's in control and overseeing the earth, but boy, he is compassionate. And then finally, if you're taking notes, God is near. He's in control, he is compassionate, and he is near. I find it so encouraging that the, this, this wealth of biblical prophecy in Ezekiel begins with this amazing series of visions where Ezekiel sees the presence of God leaving the temple in Jerusalem and joining his people in exile in Babylon. Driven from his sanctuary because of their sin, but joining them in their captivity. Joining them in their suffering joining them in their sorrow. He's near. He's near to the brokenhearted. 
Even as he disciplines his children, he joins them in their misery. Psalm 31.15 says, My times are in your hand. It is a six-word affirmation to remind Christians that despite disaster and difficulty, we are under the care of the Almighty God. Friends, we're taking our time through Ezekiel because we tried and we failed to do this in 12 weeks. The elders just said, don't worry about it. Just take your time. So this is us taking our time. I spoke to a couple of you guys after last week's lesson and you said, yeah, we were just lost. I mean, just the history and the people and Nebuchadnezzar and Alexander and the land bridge and you know what I mean? Friends, that was the easy part. This, this junk is really layered, you know? But if, we, um, if we're patient enough to think carefully about what's going on, to, well, to do as Proverbs 2 commands, that's to search and dig and hunt. In fact, let me just read it in closing. If we're diligent to this effort, God is faithful to show himself to us. He's not given his revelation to confuse us, but to help us. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now this is what we're doing, friends. We're attempting to sift and dig and ask God for understanding and unearth the treasures that are in his scriptures. And so I pray that this week you'll take some time and reread 26, 27, 28 of Ezekiel. Sift through all the language and see the big picture as it's unfolding. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how in it we find uh, a, a, a storehouse of treasures just waiting to be unearthed. I pray you'd give us clarity as we explore these things that are admittedly hard sometimes for us to understand. Thank you for giving us just little glimpses every now and then. You know, a, a moment here, a moment there, a verse here, a verse there, where we, we see a little bit of, a, of the light of what's really going on. Thank you for peeling back the scales from our eyes that are so often there as we read through challenging books like Ezekiel. No, give us patience as we wade through and comfort us with the big pictures that we're privileged to see. We love you and we trust you. Go with us and go before us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Good night.